And this, folks, I think, I think, is where the uh, where the rubber meets the road. At least I hope so. Hope everyone can uh, let's give a little let's give a little refresh here. Yep, that looks good. You can uh, completely see the branding. I hope because I'm still on the trial, still on the. Uh, the determining if this is going to work or not for us. Give me some thumbs up in the chat to even see if this chat function is working. Uh, yes, thumbs up. I'm all about it. All right, all right, all right. What's up, folks? Long time, long time no anything, huh? It's been a long time no chat. Let's uh, decrease the size of this thing because it doesn't seem to enjoy. There we go. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah, how's it going? I, I, I kind of want to see where everyone's joining in from. I, I mean, like, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have material here that I, that I wanted to cover. Um, oh, that's weird. I have to, like, um, okay, cool. So I can, <laughs> folks, I'm, I'm learning the features. Yeah, I'm using Ecamm Live, so this functions through Skype. Um, I hope everybody can also see that I've turned memberships on on the channel. So um, if you decide to become a member and the prices are exactly the same as Patreon, um, you get access to special emojis and then you unlock different badges depending on how long you've been a member, which is kind of cool. Um, what's up, Jason? Hello to everyone joining. RN, how's it going? Broderick, what's up, dude? How in the world is Sydney? Christian, how's it going? Um, yeah, I can... Uh, so I'm learning how to use all of this software. So if I click this, Jason, your pot, your your message goes up, which is kind of awesome. Um, what's up, Daniel? I hope you're holding it down in Seattle too, man. It's a, it's it's not as crazy in Seattle as the media is letting it on to be. I've gotten a ton of DMs on that. It's not to say that there isn't some stuff going down, but you know. Oh, cool. And I can zoom and resize this. Anyways, I'm learning new software. I, we also got fiber internet installed. I know that like OG Patreon people, like they know the frustration that was um, live streams previous to this. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wanted to give that as a pitch. Yes, there is uh, just a new benefit to being a YouTube subscriber now if you want to financially support here as well. Uh, that is, it, it's, it's available, it's live. There's a couple other like engagement things that I want to talk to you folks about towards the end of the live stream. But for now, I just kind of wanted to introduce this concept that I'm calling office hours and you folks in the chat can kind of leave suggestions of other things that you'd like to uh, brand this whole thing. But I, I, I and you know, so my, my first topic that I want to chat through is what is office hours? And we're going to get into like covering a lot of things that are kind of hot and top of mind for I'm sure a lot of you. Uh, what's up, Isai? And uh, Chef Holt, how's it going? Ecuador, amazing. Um, yeah, so office hours kind of evolved out of this feeling that I had um, that I that I wanted to engage with you folks a little bit more. I The live stream function on Patreon was great. I intended it to be this thing where I wanted it to be a deep dive on certain topics. And what that has transpired as I've started to learn about more of these things is that I wanted to start writing more. And so I want that content to function as its own thing, but I want it to hash itself out 
publicly, yes, when I'm having conversations with you folks, but I, I want this office hours thing specifically to be something where, you know, I, I limited the, the coaching capabilities on Patreon so that um, people get two sessions a year. But I think that there's like moments in the week or during, you know, certain seasons of your life where you have a question and you want to join. And I want that to be something that if you're financially supporting me, you have the capacity to do. And so uh, I did a poll on Patreon. Mondays worked best for most people. So I think going forward, we're going to continue to have... Um, Mondays be an office hours thing, at least once a month. And then if it becomes super popular, we will go forward from there. So first update, I guess, for everybody that's watching this post uh, live stream on Patreon, um, they flipped sales tax on us, which is, eh, you know, it's interesting. And I think that it's not a fault of their own, but they wanted us to make it known to our patrons that sales tax is a thing. And so this is me kind of letting you know, especially if you're watching this post the fact. I know that sometimes these uh, Patreon news related things can get kind of long and rambly. So I wanted to start at the beginning so you get it out of the way uh, right away that uh, Patreon, there, there will be a sales tax on Patreon. So how that works is that um, I had to go into my dashboard and turn it on to let Patreon know that I acknowledge that they will be charging my patrons for sales tax. I don't think most people kind of like really care about it, but it's something that I have to keep track of at the end of the year, and so it's out there. You can read more on Patreon's blog if you want to know why I have to start charging sales tax now on um, supporting my content. And the cool thing about it is they let us go in and categorize whether or not um, certain benefits can count as sales tax, which I may or may not also then use as my benefits, so that your support goes a longer way depending on how I categorize certain things um, or maybe just rework the, the benefits all around. Anyways, um, yeah, I just, I, these as an alternate to live streams, I think works better. And, you know, as you folks can kind of like leave questions in the chat and let me know kind of like how you think of this whole idea in general. And I want to open it up to Q&A at the end. And so I can't promise I'm going to get to you like right when you pose your question. And I'm sorry if that makes you uh, have to stick around a little bit longer in the live stream. But um, yeah, please drop your questions in if, uh, if I can help you out with anything or if you want to kind of like have a conversation with someone uh, who's in a particular similar area of the world as you. I would, of course, love to see those uh, coming through in the chat if you want. So that's done. That's done. Yeah, I, I had this amazing thing in 2019 where I had, you know, like the 10 to 12 people who are on the mentor tier of Patreon, and I would catch up with them every single month and kind of keep track of their goals and make sure that they're uh, moving in the right direction and using the right kind of tactics or even just framing things that were happening in their careers in different ways so they can continue to progress. And I, I miss that. Like, I, I was very happy that I removed it because it was getting to a point where it would no longer scale. Like, I was just getting, like, completely um, frustrated at the fact that uh, I couldn't have more time to dedicate to this thing that I liked so much. And so this once a month, hopefully on Mondays when most of you folks have time off, to just come and stop by if you're supporting my content. Like, I'm really, really excited to have that be a thing. Um, but yeah, I just... I've also, like, it's been very strange. I've hit this, and, and I apologize if this, this specific office hours turns into a mini therapy session, but I've, I've hit this point where I'm at a reasonable audience size on YouTube, as well as I've had a couple videos that have, frankly, been good enough to go not completely viral, like in the millions of views, 
but they've gone to the extent where the people that are stopping by and commenting on those videos are not the OG, they're not the real audience, right? And so then you'll have people that will just comment negative things, which it brushes off my shoulders. Like it's, um, it's the internet, right? Like I've chosen to do this whole thing. But I feel like when it's not then balanced with a proper amount of positive engagement with you folks, like the people who are like the however many people are in this live stream right now, I feel like it can become harmful. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to continue to do this because um, I think it keeps me more in touch with the people who actually do, uh, excuse my French, just give a shit. Like you folks give a shit that you're coming in and joining in on these live streams. And so if I can use these as a way to remain more in touch with you and answer your questions and help you, like that's exactly what I want all this to be. So, um, I also kind of put out a post, I think it was in my email newsletter last week, as well as a little bit of a blurb on Patreon. I'm working on online courses, um, and I know that that can kind of be um, a divisive term for a couple people. I've taken really shitty online courses, but I'm starting to understand the value of putting together courses, and, I, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit later, um, why I think that they're valuable. Um, let's see. Once a month on Monday evenings, I talked about that. Um, yeah, a lot of people, probably you might be wondering, I don't know if you are wondering or not, um, if there will be any sort of theme to office hours. Um, I don't plan on having a specific kind of like direction that I want them to, to take. It's the term obviously comes from like university professors, right? Where they will have time when they will either grade homework if no one stops by uh, or work on a piece of research that they're working on. And if no one stops by, they're still continuing to be productive. Uh, but if someone wants to stop by, a student, and have a chat, uh, that becomes that time that's made available for the students. And it's, it's you know, it's not me saying that, like, oh, uh, you can only have my time during this amount of time, but it comes from me going to a place where I... I was realizing that my time didn't scale like I thought it would. So I'm hoping, and you know, if we realize that Thursdays at 8 a.m. also work well for the people on the other side of the world, and it's actually beneficial for the audience, if I make two time slots available, we can go from there, but I want to start at least somewhere. So um, I will do be doing admin work or writing menus for the week. Uh, I usually have Tuesdays as my menu writing day. Um, I'm writing like three new uh, dishes a week for this program that uh, Voyager's Table, my company, is doing. But and I, I will talk more on that in a, in a little bit. But if you want to stop by during office hours, my time is all yours. And that's kind of um, the gist of it. And I hope that that brings value to you. Um, obviously this is like public on the main YouTube channel. Like anybody who is subscribed can, can join this. These will be kind of like, um, only available for supporters going forward. But I think that there is also value just to show people who aren't supporting yet what they would get as a benefit. I want to do these maybe like twice a year as a public thing. You, you folks can let me know kind of like what, what cadence sounds good because ultimately the goal is to make the people who are financially supporting feel like they're getting over and above and beyond value, but then also I don't want it to, um, I don't want like this kind of, I mean, I'm doing it clearly right now with the software I'm using to uh, record this, like I'm, I'm doing a free trial of it to see if I like it, and I want it to be available to people um, if they see like, oh, this is actually really cool, I would really get a lot of value from it, um, so then I'll, I'll stop back in next time. Um, 
Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to cover here just like publicly, put them on the channel. Another reason that like I'm using this time uh, publicly uh, because, and I'm not putting it behind any sort of paywall, I'm not making it a private thing that I'm going to edit and produce, but it's like issues that me as someone who covers the news in the industry, um, I haven't really covered a, a lot of things that have been going on in the news lately. And so, um, you know, as, as we kind of continue, I want to... I want to make them public and talk about them now. Uh, still, please continue to leave your questions um, in the chat and we can, you know, get to them later. Um, update on COVID. I did my first in-person event two Saturdays ago. So not this last Saturday, but the Saturday before that. It was interesting. It was a, um, it was a backyard wedding. Um, Weirdly enough, the the guests for that dinner had all been in touch with each other during quarantine, so I actually could serve a family-style meal, which I know I've talked about in previous videos. Is something that like we are not going to try to touch for guests if they haven't been together because it's just like from a sanitation perspective and just public safety, it's not a good idea to do family-style things. So it was nice to execute something that I thought I wasn't going to be able to do for another like year or so until we get to a different place uh, public safety wise. Um, Seattle is still pretty boarded up. I, I, I know that there have been a lot of people who have been talking about the stuff that's been happening in Capitol Hill and you know different areas of the US and the world are opening opening up in different ways. Um, we have a couple of like retail stores open downtown but most of the city still pretty boarded up and I personally haven't been to a restaurant to sit down for a meal since March, which, as most of you know, uh, is strange for someone like me who is a weirdo and publishes videos of my meals uh, out into the ether. So yeah, I guess that's like an update on COVID. I'd also be curious to hear you folks how everybody's been holding up. I know that a lot of people have been out of work or, or really kind of pressured in different ways because of this crisis truly, that we're all going through. Um, update on Voyager's Table. I haven't, you know, I, Voyager's Table is something that I saw, still see, and continue to push forward as like, it is a business education for myself. I came to the realization as I started to do pop-ups and do things on my own when I came back from Europe and moved to the US that I was like significantly out of my depths as like an entrepreneur, like you can, it's the same thing with like my initial culinary education, right? Like I knew the science behind making a hollandaise and I knew the, the techniques and the methods by which and the ratios and I had all this stuff memorized. But the second that I got on the stove with a whisk and some egg yolks, that's when the rubber hit the road. And the same, I, I don't know why I thought it would be different. Maybe it was because I had like some real work experience, but like, um, the same exact thing happened with entrepreneurship when I started doing pop-ups in Seattle. And so I couldn't be happier that I met uh, my business partner who has tons more business experience than I have. And Voyager's Table is like my real world business education, as well as the ability for me to learn how to scale, like not just my food, but like my professional ideas and kind of like the culture that I wanna see in the industry, right? Like we say we're a hospitality business because we do in-person events for people, but it's effectively a little bit different in the fact that it's also so client facing and we do things that aren't specifically food focused. 
sometimes. Um, take like some of our partnerships we take with Global Citizen in New York every single year. And so, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't do a ton of sharing or kind of like pontificating about Voyager's table, especially when like the, the pandemic really kind of like started to go is because I didn't know, frankly, if we were going to make it or not. And it's like, it's still, I, and I mean, I feel like a lot of people can resonate with this. It's not completely certain whether or not you're going to come out the other side of this going into like 2021. I think a lot of people have not completely written 2020 off, but I think that it's a very interesting kind of um, frame of mind where like I went into crisis mode because like we're not a big team where it's like five of us, right? And so when the livelihood of your business is threatened, I think it's not... What I didn't want to do is I didn't want to say, uh, guys, it's going to be fine. Like, everybody's going to be okay. We're overreacting because information was constantly changing. We joked about it in our team where it was like, we would go from having a complete dialed in plan of how we were going to move forward into the next week. And then on that Thursday or on the Monday going into that week, we would receive new information, whether it's like from the county, from the federal government, from uh, like public safety experts, uh, or just like uh, like the SBA, like the, the loans that were, we were going to get as a business. And then we would just joke that it was like all that work was just like completely just wipe it clean. Like, let's start over again. Um, and so that was like, that was a very, very interesting experience. And I, I'm really looking at my experience with just being part of a startup. Like I, I co-founded a startup that in and of itself, like if I'm looking objectively, if I, as much as I can to try to like get out of the washing machine and look, how is this going to benefit me going forward? I don't see myself not having some sort of like business related interest going forward in the next kind of like, I don't know, tw two decades of my career. Like I see it, I see it being there, a uh, presence. Um, and so whether that, whether that's me running the business myself, me kind of like being a partner, kind of like um, strategic direction uh, person in that business or investing in businesses. Like I'm not there yet, but that's like, that's a place that I have acknowledged personally that I want to get to. And so I think that Voyager's Table is one of those projects that's going to no doubt be a catalyst in that process. And so I think I'm semi-suffering from a similar thing that happened when I, again, when I started cooking, it was like I didn't put out a ton of content because I didn't feel like I had that much valuable tactical advice to share. Um, and, you know, I, I, I give the prescriptive advice and I have like tons and tons of videos on my phone of like, early days, we call it garage days processes, um, where it's like, I'm documenting as we go because I, I do want to share the kind of trials and tribulations. But if it, if anybody is confused as to why I don't talk about the day to day at the business that I help run, that's why it's because I want to, I want to get to the other side and then I want to be able to give advice for like different stages on the path. Like I will probably, as I change from being like a co-founder in a business to then either, there's this great um, article I read, Nathaniel Bear, Nathan Barry, uh, who's the founder of a company called ConvertKit. He has a great article on the ladders of wealth creation. And it was the first time when I saw it, and I'm a visual person, it was the first time when I saw con these concepts that I'm kind of like dealing with laid out in this visual way. And when I saw them, I was like, okay, so to 
give that as context, as I move again from to a new ladder, I can then take a look back at this chapter in my career and then give advice on it, similar to basically what I'm doing uh, with cooking professionally. So I hope that that kind of gives clarity on like, what is this Voyager's table thing? Like, why do you never talk about it so much? Um, yeah, it's like we've been in crisis management mode, but it has been very, very interesting because we, I joke, not joke, but I like, I observe that we went from a consulting business, basically a hospitality focused consultancy business to a product focused business now because <clears throat> we're delivering kits to clients. Uh, I taught my first like large scale cooking class. Uh, I've taught two of them now to, uh, last Friday was 40 in the forties of people. And the one uh, before that was like 53 people, I think attended, which is very, very interesting. And we were in charge of um, delivering the ingredients for those uh, events as well and facilitating all the scheduling and making sure that um, the right person was highlighted on the video call. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating, I'm like, I feel like I'm getting half a decade of business experience in like 24 months, which I can't, um, overemphasize enough the the positive value of it so um yeah i hope that answers any questions if anybody has anything that they're like curious about or i haven't been super clear on i'd also love you to leave those in the chat um i want to talk about black lives matter uh i one of you folks a black business owner specifically reached out with a couple of voice messages to say things like restaurants shouldn't be political and that they should be kind of void of, especially on social media, sharing their thoughts on world events because they should be places where people can escape and enjoy food, right? For pleasure's sake, hedonistically. And I, you know, whether or not this specifically requires me to do a solo podcast episode on, I think that most of the audio here will go on to be its own um podcast episode, I think that this section specifically should be a clip so that people can kind of like know where my thoughts are on it. I don't necessarily agree with this person's perspective and I want to share why. And I'd also, as most of these, you know, topics go, I want your conversations in the chat so that we can kind of like hash out different things as we go for this kind of, th kind of thing. But there's this, that saying that I, I think is, is a little bit beaten to death, but I think that it's important to kind of state here, which is the, the state of, if you, the statement of, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And I think that it can often get twisted into giving people like this uh, self-righteous uh, nature to stand up for things just because it is something to stand up for, not because they necessarily completely agree with... Um, something that they, that this specific cause, but take that for what you will. But then also because of the kind of current state of things, I think, and this is one man's opinion, is that your team and your customers need to know where you stand on certain things. Because if you are someone that's saying, well, I only cook at home and I publish my content online, and nobody ever has any sort of in-person interactions with my food, I think that your stance on things, because of the nature of your business, can be a little bit different towards people that have restaurants in the traditional sense, which basically means anybody off the street can come in and sit in your establishment. 
And I think we're seeing this with the masks kind of play out, right? Where people get so up in arms with people that uh, don't wear masks or conversely, the places that um, have uh, guidelines that say you can't come in here unless you're wearing a mask, right? And so if by allowing your team to feel supported with the resources to address these uh, interactions that may or may not take place in your in your place, you are then kind of like drawing a line in the sand, which is saying, this is where we stand on this issue, right? And the heartbreaking part about it is that it's become so political, right? And this, and then you extrapolate that to saying politics has become this thing that at, at many points for a lot of people, and I'm not saying this is true of everybody, but it's become a my team versus your team kind of debate. It's no longer become about the ideals or the proposals or the kind of like long-term goals of these sort of initiatives. It's very much so become if you don't, if you're not on our team, you must be not just on someone else's team, but you must be the worst possible possible human and moral embodiment of that other team, right? And that's where I get frustrated with all of this, where it's not like, why can't, and you know, there's a lot of people who will speak on this much more eloquently than I do, but um, I have been doing a lot of learning. And I want to talk about that in a second. But Sam Harris has this quote that he mentioned on episode number 207 of his podcast, if anybody wants to listen to that. Quote, it is no question that conversation itself has become dangerous, end quote. And I think that that's very important. I think the people who have been listening to not just this podcast, but this entire channel for a really long time have been kind of like <laughs> almost bored to death. Like it's it's could arguably become a meme that I pitch so hard for even when I talk on the smallest of issues. Like I want to hear your perspective because then at least it can become a conversation as opposed to just me talking into a mic, like spilling my uh, opinions or my thoughts or, or, you know, sharing the facts followed by, you know, whatever I happen to think about it at the time. And so like, I really believe it's the best way to work these things out, conversation, right? Or, or at least incentivize our collective understanding to move forward in a progress-focused way, right? I just think that, like, team kindness should be the goal. It should, it should be focused on being kind to one another, and it sucks that uh, insert group of people or insert belief system can then completely cause someone who would normally be kind to not be that. I think that's very interesting. So yeah, I think the other the other thing that I that I have here in my notes is to be clear about what you're talking about. So be clear about like I, I, I want to know when you're actually calling something racism versus when you're saying it because it's something that you read or something that you heard. And I think that that's why it's so important to have these conversations because it, I mean, we all dealt with it, right? Like we were all so like, we we're just at home for the longest time. And the only time you interacted with people was like either like this, like a video call or like you went back and forth with them in some sort of social media type of messaging system. That's not always the best way to carry nuance or have good conversations. And I'm 
happy to see that some of you have been like doing some real educated learning and trying to get a couple different sides of the the coin on this stuff. But it's like I heard this great thing on Joe Rogan's podcast where he says it's important to distinguish the difference between the I did it and you can too kind of philosophy behind like people saying, oh, well, it's not that hard um, because like I was able to become successful and, and raise up out of this whole thing uh, if they started in a bad place versus the kind of hollow pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, advice that can often get blanketed towards people without any knowledge of the kind of like systemic oppression and like racism, the real racism. Uh, that causes people to have a disadvantage starting out. So I hope all of this is kind of like making sense, and please, if I'm not um, being super clear, leave it in, in the comments. I just like, I want, I, I, I so, and this is always, I, I realized this as I was writing my notes here, that I want you folks to think for yourselves. Like, that's why I structure the podcast in that way, where it's like, Here's the facts. Here's my opinion. Now, what do you think? I want you to think for yourselves. And I hope that you can come away from, you know, all of us getting this kind of, what is the quote? Is like decades happening in weeks, you know? Like all of this stuff that we're all seeing happen right before our eyes so tangibly uh, that you're able to kind of take that, what is that? There's a Charlie Munger quote that says something along the lines of he won't argue against someone on something unless he can state their argument better than they can. I think the technical term is steel manning. And like, we should, we should all kind of like uh, uh, reach for that. We should all um, strive towards being able to do that with certain issues. And there's another um, kind of combination of, of people, Brett Weinstein and Sam Harris, also who I've mentioned already, being explicitly clear about what things mean versus what the mob mentality kind of takes and runs with. And we're all guilty of this, right? We see a bunch of people up in arms about something and we're like, oh yeah, of course I should be angry about that because so many other people are angry about it. Um, yeah, just very, very interesting. I keep seeing this. Uh, yeah, perfect questions coming through. Okay, so happy. Um, so on that point, and to kind of close close out this conversation, I basically spent three hours on Saturday and a couple more hours today uh, listening to, to debates on this topic, and that's why I'm kind of high, high strung on this idea of like truly understanding both sides. Like, don't fall victim to just completely getting indoctrinated by one set of ideas constantly. I just don't think it's very, very helpful, especially in this time when it's like people can become so inflamed and up in arms about certain points of view and I think that you're doing yourself a disservice as kind of like a citizen of the world if you don't um, educate yourself and spend the time to really like dig into these things and I can like I can leave some um, um, links to inspiration going down here what else do I have in my in my notes here yeah George's George Floyd's death was horrific to watch and it, it was just a month ago which is bonkers and what's been glaringly obvious in the new points of view I'm being made aware of and the stances that people have that I see going around on Twitter and the history that's involved all kind of like colliding and clashing right now is that I still have a lot to learn and 
I've really enjoyed that process because it, it, I mean, you folks know I'm like all about the improvement game and not just learning for sake of having facts to spit out, but actually being more empathetic so that I can function better in different situations, right? And it's, that's worth it to me. That learning process is worth it to me because I want, I don't want to move out into the mountains and be isolated and just be, right? Like I love cities. I love traveling the world. I love helping people. And if I'm going to continue to do that, if I'm going to be able to be made aware of more things that are happening with and to people, the best part of all of that is that I know, like, I know what to do with that access and that ability to impact people's lives once I have it. I'm not afraid of it. And so I'm going to continue to pursue it because I think it makes me a better professional. I hope. <laughs> I hope. So with that, Black Lives Matter, let's all work really hard to be more kind to each other this week. Um, and, you know, to completely change the topic, I again, I don't want this to completely go... Um, to, to zero, but um, I want to talk about my newfound passion, which is teaching and writing online. And this comes from a, a, a duo, a business partner duo named David Perel and Tiago Forte. I've tweeted about them a bunch. If uh, some of you don't kind of um, follow me on Twitter already, you should. I've been tweeting quite a bit lately, more than at least I have. Not like the number that people say that you should tweet to kind of actually start to grow a following, but compared to my normal cadence of tweeting, I've been tweeting a lot more. And if you want to get engaged with that kind of stuff, I'd really encourage you to uh, follow along. Uh, Tiago has a course called Building a Second Brain. And the idea of it is that we, as kind of people who consume information, should not then rely on the the kind of like thought processing organ in our heads to keep track of all that information and be able to call upon it at a moment's notice when we need it to create something or to communicate something. And so the idea behind it, and I've spent a lot of time using um, a combination of Notion and Airtable, Airtable more so on the culinary side for you chefs that are interested, but then on the business side uh, using Notion to keep track of different ideas as I consume them. And it's completely changed how I've thought about like uh, what Tiago calls personal knowledge management, a la if I want to write an article on, um, let's see, so being creative and starting businesses in the hospitality sector, I could start by opening up Microsoft Word or Google Docs and have a blank canvas, or I could, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna dive into it now because it, 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 it's still continuing to evolve and it's a little bit like, it's, it's, it's mine. So I know how to read it. I can't show it to you and you can then look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. The basic premise of it is an Airtable function similar for me. Use, I mean, we've all had places where we work or people that we've worked with where their knowledge system is pieces of paper, non-searchable, uh, strings of emails in their inbox and sent box, or conversations that they've had with either colleagues that then go off to do other things. Or what I'm saying is it's not searchable. It's not in one centralized location. And it's not aligned to the ability 
that the brain is actually good at, which is having ideas. So the second you have an idea, how soon can you go from having it to capturing it to uh, developing it to then sharing it? And that's what this whole thing is all about. And I, I became incredibly fascinated by it. And I went on a deep dive. I didn't take the full course, but I took a lot of the principles and basically like kind of made my own. And I'd be curious on sharing that um, with you folks. And my culinary one specifically is officially built out. So think about um, all the dishes you've ever made on all of your menus. Um, the kind of like three-tiered system that I spoke about in one of my um, previous videos about um, menu writing, where it's not only having the descriptor of the dish, the, the name of the dish on the menu, but then it's also how does the person who's presenting the dish to a guest talk about it, aka with all of the kind of like, oh, this comes from so-and-so farms, the chefs prepare it, blah, 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 and uh, it's finished with blank. But then how do we talk about it internally? That note is there with the dish. And so I started, as I was building this out, I started to see how complex our work actually is from a knowledge management perspective. Because not only does that dish then, it, I'm basically admitting to you folks, and you can back me up on this if you've dealt with this, the dish has three different ways to describe it, depending on the person that you're talking about it to, or where it's getting displayed. But then that individual dish and the components that go along with it come with a prep list. And then that prep list has specifics behind it. Same thing with the order list, right? Like how many celery roots do we need to make the celery root puree? And then what's the recipe for that? And then in my business specifically, we work with a rental company a lot to do events in different locations because every single one of our menus and every single one of our proposals is custom. And so then from my perspective, what does this dish need from a, what is it getting served on? And this is more tying it to the kind of traditional restaurant. Like what, what plate does the caviar dish get served on? And then in addition to that, what kind of like place settings go with it? And so this is like becoming a full suite of kind of like very interesting, like, oh, well, these are just conversations we have, but it's not actually recorded anywhere. So that if I say, okay, we're going into next fall, what were we doing last fall? And how were we kind of thinking about it? You can lose countless hours pouring over this information again, because you, you, you haven't done the work required to capture it in an effective way. And so that was fascinating for me as someone who was just like, I started thinking about it personally, personal knowledge management. And then I started to think about like, oh, what does culinary knowledge management look like? Because a lot of times, like we as chefs are put on blast, like we get handed the microphone to say, what do you want to serve this on? Does this need a spoon and a fork or a fork and a knife? And if we were able to just create and, and not dump, but actually curate and categorize our ideas in a way that's useful, not just for us, so that's out of our heads, like I said, but so that it's useful for our teams, then, like, how many chefs just get constantly berated with questions all day of, like, what are we going to serve this on? Uh, what wine goes with this? Uh, where is the cheese from, again? You know, and to be able to spend the time to manage this culinary knowledge and then make that accessible for your team so that they can then go in and look. I haven't seen that done in a professional setting yet. And if you folks have examples, I would like 
more than love to have the people who are doing this properly um, on the podcast. And I, I started to see this uh, habit at different places in my career, right, where, you know, French laundry recipes in particular were, like, very systemized. Um, but then it was one of these things where it was like, I didn't, I would, um, in an instance where um, I, so, like, if I'm making a puree and the instruction is to use a very specific type of olive oil in that puree or a certain brand of dried fruits or something along those lines, if we didn't have that ingredient, I would then have to go talk to either a chef de partie who's made it before or a sous chef of mine. It is crazy to me that they say, oh, last time we did it, we had to do this. Why would that first instance of, oh, when we don't have this olive oil, we use this instead, that can get cataloged into this personal culinary management system. And then if you are looking at that recipe live on this, and I don't know if this is an app or if I exclusively use Airtable, I don't know how this works yet. I'm just kind of like, this is the same epiphany I had when I was like, oh, well, making a reservation and dining out should actually be a little bit easier than it is. Um, but I'm actually actively trying to build this based on the work that Tiago Forte has done. I'm writing a lot more. This is clearly evidence of that. Like my notes on this live stream in particular are, are pretty long. Um, and I think that's great. Um, but I've actively forced myself to get out of this negative self-talk that I've had for a while, which was that I'm not a good writer. And it came to light when I would look at the scripts that I've written. I think I said it on one of the last podcast episodes I did where it's like, when I write an emulsion podcast episode where I literally write all my stuff and then I read you folks basically what I'm um, trying to say, it's like 5,000 words, like between 5,000 and 7,000 words. Same things with when I'm writing recipes every single week uh, for this uh, product that we're delivering to people in Seattle. It's like, I think it's like 3,500 words. And so, and I do it without any editing. I do it because I, I clearly understand the information and I'm able to communicate it through a keyboard, right? So it's like, I can't have both. I can't say I'm a bad writer, but then also pump out, like, I would argue between emails and all this stuff, over 10,000 words a week. They can't both be true. Because if it was like, if I was really bad at writing, I probably wouldn't have this job doing things that are writing. And so I overcame that. And then I started to kind of think through, like, what do I want to write? So the idea that I'm hoping to have going forward is that the process by which videos make it into your YouTube feed look a little bit different. So the idea being, first, I either tweet about it or share it in my email newsletter. Plug, shameless plug for both of those things. You should be on my newsletter and you should follow me on Twitter. Then I get a little bit of feedback on those kind of um, on those systems. So I get feedback on that idea, the, the, the nugget of the idea. And then I hash it out with a little bit of you folks. Again, back to conversation. I want to have conversations about these things. Poke holes in my idea. Then I refine it a little bit, and then as I'm writing about it, it becomes an article. And that article gets shared on my personal website. Call it blogging, call it writing essays, call it whatever you want. That then hopefully gets either shares, comments, or it falls completely flat on its face. And if that's if it falls flat on its face, I need to reworkshop that idea. I need to do better. 
if it does well, and it's not just to say that the, only the good articles and the good tweets are going to get made into YouTube videos, but then, basically because the any one of my scripts for any one of my YouTube videos could be turned into an article. Any YouTube video that I've made in the past, whether it's like the Stagiaire email template video, any of the kind of like, these are tips to improve your station at work videos, um, maybe some of the knife gear reviews, if you transcribe all of that audio that I say in the video, and put it into a medium post and made nice titles and italicized a couple words and made some things bold, put some quotation marks around a few things, that's an article. So it's like my article then becomes like my starting point for the script for the video. And then it becomes a YouTube video. Because I run into it sometimes with, um, like I made certain claims on my what is the difference between a cook and a chef video, that if that idea that I had would have been more out there and available to the public, I could have refined that kind of last statement that I made in that video, which was basically, if you're getting paid to cook professionally, you are a chef. And I think that a lot of people have issue with that um, specific statement. And the argument that I've seen that stands up particularly well on my argument is that uh, people at McDonald's can call themselves chefs then. And I think that there there is some workshopping that needed to be done with that final kind of like mic drop, not mic drop, but like that final closing argument that would have been better had it lived as an article first, where I could have like, I could have had people comment on Twitter or email me in private or like whatever. It would have served me better to have gone about producing that piece of content in particular in a different way. And I hope that if you've been following along for a while, you can see that I, I see problems in the industry. I see problems in the way that we work. I see uh, improvements that can be made, optimizations, but I don't know how they play out yet. And if I'm going to do and make the changes that I hope to see in the world effectively, I need to be able to share them in a productive way that is not just me being this kind of like holier than thou. I've never been like that, but like... The whole process is going to benefit if I can improve my writing habit. And so that's kind of like, I'm semi doing this to say publicly so you folks can keep me accountable. But at the same time, I'm letting you know what to expect. So it's not like, oh, well, is he not being a YouTuber anymore? It's like, no, you're actually going to get better videos, right? You're going to get well, more well thought out videos where it's like, I'm going to get to a point where like, oh, I actually need to call someone about this or I need to, I would be better off if I got a different perspective to talk about this with me. Um, or even in private, so then I can learn about it, and then I can quote those people and cite uh, what they've shared, right? So you're getting better content. It's just going to look a little bit different than the traditional kind of like, oh, just publish the YouTube video and call it a day kind of thing, right? And this is all about kind of like, this is in David Perel's like um, four-figure uh, writing course. The vlog that I made in January, kind of like, addressing why I wasn't super psyched to make YouTube videos, I think has kind of been reinvigorated by this newfound, not just process, but like understanding that um, I think a little bit differently and that's gonna be met with some disagreements and I have this desire to put positive change out there and it's not always gonna be met with um, I don't know why I'm wearing these headphones. They aren't actually giving me any audio feedback. So I'm going to take them off and you folks have to tell me if the audio goes to shit. So yes, I was feeling, I was feeling in a funk, um, basically all of 2020. 
and then of course we get this global pandemic and uh, the riots that are happening in the streets, not just in my city, but the entire world. And it was not a very good environment for me to get back on the horse, but I'm very glad that I was able to acknowledge that I was feeling in a funk. Um, it also really helped me to put out the episode that I put out, which was uh, addressing depression and anxiety. That was very, very helpful for me. Um, and so the other thing that was coming along with that was the, I, I think most of you folks know this story, but I'm going to, I'm going to share it. Um, the, you know, arguably semi-racist fisherman story, because people tell it from like Mexican fishermen versus Chinese fishermen, which is unfortunate, but that's how it goes. But the idea behind it is that there is a wealthy business owner who comes to, we'll call it a Mexican fisherman, and he says, hey man, what are you doing? And the fisherman says, oh, well, I'm uh, sitting here on my afternoon drinking a beer, catching fish that I'm going to cook with my family, and afterwards I'm going to spend the night with my kids. And they say, oh, well, what if you've got two fishing poles? And then he puts out two fishing poles. And then they say, oh. and then the fisherman says, well, what do I do with this extra fish? And the businessman says, oh, well, you sell it for profit. And he goes, okay, does decently well with that. Then he gets a, a small fishing boat. And it goes up and up and up until they, um, he's telling him about this grand vision he'll have for basically having a fleet of ships that bring in a bunch of fish and sell it for a bunch of money. And the fisherman says, well, why would I want to do that? Or he goes, well, what will I do after I have that? And he says, you will sit on a pier in the afternoon drinking a beer, catching fish, and then you can go home and cook it with your family and spend time with your kids. And I was, quite honestly, if I'm being very honest with you folks, I was feeling a little bit of that going into end of 2019, particularly. I was like, my business was growing. I kind of had like this audience, which was amazing. And I had a set of skills where I didn't feel insecure working, the doing the work that I was doing. Um, I was about to, I'm, I mean, I'm still getting married in the fall. Like I had found the love of my life and I didn't have any financial insecurities. I, like I said, I felt satisfied in my work. I was happy with, I was like friends with the people that I was working with. And I got to this point where I was like, I started to look at all of it and I was like, should I be either more grateful for this or will pushing for more sabotage myself? Does that make sense? So it's like, if I continue to like say, oh, I need more YouTube subscribers, I need to make more money. Um, I like got rid of a bunch of my stuff. Like I was just like, I was, I, I had this overwhelming sense. I was traveling enough. I could go see my parents. I was like, I felt very content and that's weird for someone like me, you know, because I was, I was, especially early on in my career, I was so ambitious, um, working tons of days for tons of hours for very little money. And I got to this point where I was like, I felt like that fisherman in that, uh, tale, in that fable, right? Where I was like, why would I push for more if I have basically what I need? Uh, 
because then it, it comes to a conversation of like, well, why do you need more subscribers? Wouldn't that work be better served like um, hiring more people and creating more jobs within your company, right? Like it then becomes like this, oh, well, I would want to give back more. Um, and I think that the, that that was ultimately harmful because I, I, I got to a point where I could understand that I was resting on my laurels a little bit. And again, I'm sorry that this is turning into a therapy session, but you need to understand why I was feeling the way that I was. And maybe if you folks get to this point, you can call this as a story. And again, I'm not saying that this is like, oh, you should listen to what I did and do exactly what I did. But it's like, this is how I'm processing going through and having these feelings, right? So I was like, it was also like this weird confluence of like what I did online, not matching with what the state of the world was, right? Like the news cycle was so much. I think a lot of you probably felt this at certain points. I didn't feel like covering industry stories that were basically sharing tragedy after tragedy after tragedy and pontificating on it from my perspective wasn't doing any good for anybody. And it shows by the fact that like no one was actively saying, Justin, we miss your perspective on these sorts of things. I, they, you didn't need it. Like, you didn't need my perspective to tell you what was happening in the world. Does that make sense? And I'm happy that I'm covering it now because it's like hindsight's always 2020, whatever. It was also like this place called episodes were feeling silly to make because it's like all these restaurants were closed. <laughs> you couldn't, like I would go onto the website to get the link for the restaurant's website to put in the description of the video. And there would be a pop-up that came out that was like, we're closed due to COVID-19. Our team can't wait to serve you soon, right? Like how heartbreaking is that? So it's like, I have two This Place Called episodes, one from Benelong in Australia and one from Ga in Thailand, which is also like, I don't even know if I want to make that. Like, because like the team from that restaurant was so gracious to us because we went in March, basically as COVID was like sweeping the world. And it was us and one other couple in that restaurant. There was two people that night on the books. They lost basically all their revenue for that, for that night. And it was horrible to watch. But then at the same time, they didn't hold anything back. We got the full amazing experience from this restaurant. And it was one of the most like clearly point of view percept, like it had a point of view on Indian food. And most of you folks know that that's like one of my biggest points of contention with Indian food is that I don't think fine dining Indian food has reached the point where I've seen enough good articulations of points of view yet. And this place had it. And the team was super friendly and they like, they let us take a picture with them and all this stuff. We were the last people to leave that restaurant because we were the only people in that restaurant. And it did not, it did, it felt so silly to make this place called episodes. So I wasn't going to do the podcast. I wasn't going to make this place called episodes. No one was at work to take advice style videos, right? Like if I could tell you, oh, here's a couple things that you can do to improve your performance while you're cooking on the line or managing or whatever. Nobody was working. So it was like, that felt really silly to make. So it's like, pick any style of video that I would normally produce and put on the internet. And it was like, it seemed kind of uh, 
not re not redundant, but like counterintuitive. It felt like very like uh, get with it. Like look, read the room, dude. You know, like no one's at work. Restaurants are closed. It seemed very silly for me to try to make content, and so then it was like it kind of sucked it out, right? It was like oh, I can't. I can't make or do this thing. So that's why I like burrowed into this like weird research phase of, of the last three months where I was like, I felt like, and most of you folks know I love my Dragon Ball Z um, references. I went into the, what is it called? Someone put it in the chat. The chamber that um, Goku and Gohan went into to like train where like time passes more in there. So you can get 10 years worth of training in like three months um, that's how it felt. And I feel like I'm coming out the other side of it, having so much more clarity on what I want the channel to be, what I want my work to be, what I want to put out into the world. Um, and I'm reminding you folks that had the global pandemic and the riots in the streets not had happened, I wouldn't be seeing the benefits that I'm seeing now because I took some time away where I was like, I truly had to reflect on it. Not just a vacation, but truly reflect on it. And then come back. Yes, hyperbolic time chamber. Amazing. And so, my... I also kind of, kind of, in this whole light, where as these news events... You know, like, news events like, oh, certain chef at so-and-so moves to a different restaurant. Or so-and-so has a lawsuit against them. Or Ryan Sutton wrote this piece, and it's uh, total bullshit. That's easy for me to cover because I can have a grasp on it. Like, I can see it. I can uh, perceive the point of view because it's coming from one person more often than not. Or it's a little bit of outrage in, like, a corner of the internet. I can, I can cover that. I feel comfortable doing that. I feel like my point of view has something to add to that conversation. But my desire to help bubbled out and it got too wide as all of this stuff was happening in the world, right? And I had to realize that I can't help everyone. I can't help everything. And that's not me saying like, oh, I'm, I'm the best and I could help everything if I just had the right platform or if I had more followers or whatever. I had to, it's me acknowledging that I'm not the person to do that. That's not my area of expertise. It's just like, I wanted to help so bad and you see these people saying that they can't, go to work. They're having to close their restaurants. Like, um, a friend of mine in Seattle has been in this, in this space since he was 25 and he had to close his restaurant. What do you say to that? So this is not his fault, right? And so it was like all, any of the advice that I could have given or could have pontificated on, it was, it felt like a fool's errand to try to, sh it felt like shouting into the void especially at this point in my career, you know? Because you see people at the top echelon of business success in the culinary world, and they're trying to help, but then people are getting pissed off at them because they're doing so by sitting at the same table as our president. Very, very bizarre. Very bizarre. And I didn't feel like I could help. And that was a weird place for me to be in, to be very honest. Anyways. I was very happy to finally get to the point, and I haven't felt this way in a long time, and it felt really, really good to get there in this kind of like, what was it, the hyperbolic time chamber, hyperbaric time chamber? What's the difference, hyperbolic, hyperbaric? Somebody Google that. When I have something to optimize, 
or if I'm at the bottom of a new learning curve that I'm motivated to see through to the end, I need to caveat with that, I thrive so much. Start a new video game, uh, need to learn a new piece of software, get a new camera and need to learn the ins and outs of it, um, new piece of kitchen equipment, new knife that has a really interesting angle and it's very challenging to get the sharpening just right, new computer setup, all of these situations, the novelty of it and the challenge of learning to master it, that's where I thrive. And so that's why I kind of like, I took a step back and I went into this kind of like training mode where it was like I was learning how to improve in these ways where I could see ripple effects down the line. I completely kind of like revamped who I was following on Twitter, not so much Instagram because I don't scroll Instagram that much, but like um, developing this knowledge management system where like I basically made it more entertaining for me to read articles on my iPad and take notes on them than it is for me to watch YouTube videos. And it's not to say that one source of content is better because you can get amazing interviews on YouTube where you're learning more than kind of like clickbaity style junk articles. But it was like, I forced myself to develop these habits that ultimately like made for a better me. And so I'm hoping that that can kind of like give you some insight as to why I'm, I know this seems like it's a lot about me and I wanna to get to your questions in a hot second, I'm almost done. What this all leads to is a series of online courses that I want to launch in the next couple of weeks and months. And I think the issue that I had in, most of you folks know that like, I've never had an issue attaching my work to financial remuneration, right? It's ads have always been turned on on YouTube. I've never been against advertising. I've taken some sponsorships in the past. I have a Patreon. I've always wanted it to be baked in to what I'm about. I think that what I do is valuable and I think that there is financial remuneration that would go appreciated if you also think it's valuable. I didn't want to be one of those channels that's like, it goes for free and anti-ad and uh, too good to accept your money for too long. And then all of a sudden I decide I want to turn it on and the community, like I lose 100,000 subscribers from it because the huge backlash, because I've always been about doing this for free. I also think that is coupled with the idea that there's a lot of people out there who just like, they sell you the course about how to make money on selling courses. Does that make sense? Where it's like, and I've taken some of those courses and I was just immensely disappointed. I was like, this is not teaching me anything. Or the people who were teaching didn't actually know, they weren't um, outliers in their field. They weren't high performers in that specific discipline. And that's why I, I tout the discovery of David Perel and Tiago Forte, because both of their courses, Building a Second Brain and Rite of Passage, both are incredibly valuable. There's a clear reason for why they exist. They have these secondary and tertiary benefits in addition to the material that's covered in the course, a la um, feedback from the cohort that you're taking the class with, as well as the community that can extend beyond kind of the class itself, as well as what they were doing now in their latest cohort, which I'm very excited to do as we kind of like grow this out. They're bringing mentors back. So it's like if you've taken the course and you've gone off to do something, you then come back 
and participate in the next kind of cohort of things. And this is kind of like, this is also kind of like convolt, like it's colliding with this immense frustration that people have had for great reasons in the culinary school system for ages and ages and ages. And then we're also seeing it play out in like larger institutionalized education systems in the US in particular, where it's like, why am I, and COVID accelerated this, right? Like, why am I paying $60,000 a year to be on a Zoom call? So what if I could create something, this is the nugget of inspiration for it, what if I could create a nugget of, the, 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 the what if I could create a nugget? Been talking for too long, being on camera for too long. What if I could create a course that you not only got immense professional value from and learned valuable skills, but then the completion of that course was actually a signifier to a potential employer of like, I know how to do this, right? I know how to reasonably conduct myself professionally in a kitchen. I know how to organize myself, and this is this is like me also taking a look at the immense flood of questions I get. That's why reps started, right? Reps started because I was like, people would ask me, how do I get faster in the kitchen? And now I'm getting kind of like a different version of that question, which is leading me to desire, what I want to create a course on it, which is like how to be organized in a kitchen, how to operate efficiently and effectively in a kitchen professional one, not just at home. And so that takes me to this place of wanting to launch this thing that can then, you're learning with other people, you're growing in your network, you have this thing that you can show to someone that says, I completed this because that holds more weight than I watched Justin's YouTube video on it. I don't know if that holds weight. Some of you that only makes sense if the person that's hiring you also knows who I am and finds the value, finds the content that I put out to be valuable. So if it's, if it's, we're, we're still culturally, for whatever reason, stuck in this framework and, you know, for sometimes good reason, because there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there who think that, oh, just because you say you have the knowledge or you've done it in certain ways it doesn't hold as much weight as saying, oh, I went to CIA or I went to Le Cordon Bleu, right? Um, so I want that to be launched by the end of the year. I'm saying it publicly now so that you folks can keep me accountable. I think that also kind of leads into, um, and this is, you know, part of the me having the culinary knowledge management system, which is not a very <laughs> nice and rolls off the tongue uh, way to say it. But the recipe database is also one of the questions that I get a ton of emails about. And I think what it did, me launching that idea and that kind of program and ultimately having it fall off the rails, I'm sorry uh, that it did fall off the rails, it just became too much for me to manage. And the people, again, it's like, I have such good ideals for things being free. But for whatever reason, by putting a dollar amount attached to them, like I had this idea like, oh, members of the audience will keep track of the recipes and do it. What I should have done is I should have created a system that I hired an assistant for, that I, I hired 
someone to manage the, the recipe database project. And just by me putting a dollar amount to it, it would have made it real. Same with the courses, right? And the videos, right? When you watch it for free, it becomes something that you can write off and it becomes this thing where like, oh, I kind of like I did that thing. But when you really like, you hit the buy button and you input your credit card number and you buy it, all of a sudden now you have skin in the game. There's whole books about this concept. And so as I'm starting to move forward and launch these own projects, I'm not only asking myself, how can I have skin in the game? But how can I have the people who are either working on this with me or who are getting value from it to also have skin in the game? Because I don't want it to be this thing where like, oh, well, there's all this advice on YouTube that I put out, but it's like you watch it and you just kind of never act on it. If you're surrounded by people who are also going through the same thing that you are going through, it's not only going to make the course better on the next round through, but it's going to make your experience of learning that thing even better. Because it can be incredibly isolating being in this industry, especially as like a chef who's going around staging, trying to like get their resume built up. You're constantly basically alone until you go into a new restaurant and then you make friends, right? Um, so that's kind of like what I'm working on, what you can expect from me over the next couple of, of, of weeks and months. I'm going to scroll back up and I'm, I'm going to ask questions. I hope that the, uh, the mic quality is still fine. Let's see, what do we got here? What do we got? I'm here for questions. I'm here for questions. Dreaming of having a pop-up restaurant. It's not easy. There's a reason that there aren't that many that exist. Uh, I think the best iteration that any of us have seen from it is Next in Chicago, where it's like the menu changes every quarter. Thoughts on inspiration versus appropriation in recipe writing cuisine. Does it exist? I'm gonna, can I add this? Yeah, perfect. See, look at this software, folks. Um... I think that appropriation can exist if and when you decide to call it authentic and or drawing a direct line back to the source. And when I say that, I mean like we saw that whole article that I covered on the podcast of like Gordon Ramsay and Andrew Zimmern having their concepts where it was like Andrew Zimmern's was called Lucky Cricket and he was like truly authentic Chinese cuisine based on my time traveling the streets of... China, blah, blah, blah. That is not correct if you are taking those ideas, those, those traditions, those culturally rooted kind of ideas, serving them to a different audience with different ingredients, and does that make sense? I think that inspiration, we can argue, is constantly getting, like, the, the, the easiest kind of, like, place where this falls apart is the fact that, like, what is it, 400 years ago, Italy didn't have tomatoes, you know? So at what point do we decide that it's tradition versus like, oh, well, this thing came to us and we decided to make the most of it, or we started making this thing out of necessity. So I say it somewhere on my website, I think, whereas like I, I don't shy away from the concept of fusion because the second that you say you are going to be rooted in tradition, you then have to decide it's this time frame that I'm going to be snapshotted in. Because if you're saying something along the lines of, I'm only going to cook uh, Italian food from southwestern Italy between 1798 and 1847, then you're boxed in creatively, 
right? Because there are only so many things that check all of those boxes at the same time. And so I think you can, you can get yourself trapped in this thought of like, oh, well, either one, I'm never going to create because you're like, I don't want to steal from other people, which is kind of a fallacy. Or two, I'm never going to create or everything that I create has to be in this box and then you're never creatively fulfilled. So we have to be somewhere in the middle, all of us do. And I think that's okay. I think the other thing that, you know, gets talked about quite a bit, um, which I kind of had turned on its head, I, I wanted to share this concept, maybe in a video, maybe in, a, in an article, is um, Derek Sivers, who is like a writer, he talks about this concept of not actually giving credit because he is convinced that if he says an idea, if he has a thought, it is an amalgamation of probably four or five different concepts that he has then ingested, re-kind of like spun it in his head, and then he's said it in its, in its own new way. And in the idea itself, it's coming from Derek Sivers. If you were to ask Derek, hey, that quote that you said about blah, 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 where did that come from? He could tell you where it comes from, but he then doesn't have to have the idea and then say underneath that quote that he put on Twitter, um, CC Naval Ravikant, CC Tim Ferriss, CC Brene Brown, CC like all these other people. Like he doesn't have to tell you every little string of where that idea came from. He can if you ask him, because he knows, but by presenting this as an idea, you don't necessarily have to say this is where every single little bit of thing came from. Because at some point, it's like you created it, you made it. I think where we get into a trap is where we see like the, um, like Franzen in Stockholm doing the Rubik's Cube idea, which is not their idea, but they got a lot of recognition from it. I think that's very, very interesting. How are you, Rohan? What do you think about getting in a certain cuisine from an upcoming chef? Do you think getting invested in a certain specific area is beneficial? Um, I think this is also a fascinating topic, which I think um, I haven't fully deep dived in, but I think that it's uh, interesting to play around with it for a second, so deal, deal with me on this. You should just constantly be cooking the food that you're excited about. And if for those nine months, that is South Indian food, you should do it. If for two weeks you want to explore hot chicken recipes or go through making like 16 different types of enchiladas, you should do that, especially early on. Because I don't think that you're not gonna get benefit from any of those experiences. And I talk about this in the reverse, where I had a guy who came to work with us in Norway, and he specifically, I remember, I met him at Noma when I was staging at Noma, and he did his Saturday night, Sunday night, Saturday night project, which was a kind of like a degustation of onions. So he took an onion, he took like six onions, and prepared them into three different dishes with different textures and different uses of the onion. And there was maybe like four or five projects that were presented that night. And his was the only one that Renee 
said was a good project. Like, he, he visibly was, like, fascinated by what this guy was making. And so, as my, when I became a sous chef at Lisverket in Norway, my chef was like, is there anybody that you know that's interested in kind of like this new Nordic kind of cuisine that would want to come on the team? So I messaged this guy, because we were friends on Facebook. And he was like, I'm actually in London. I'm really interested in coming out, working with you guys. Um, I happen to be wanting a visa right now, so blah, 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 blah. And he came out to work with us. And he was horrendously bad as an employee. Like, and it all comes down to the fact that he was a vegetarian. He himself ate vegetarian. And he was coming to the west coast of Norway, where our only goal as a restaurant was to highlight on the west coast of Bergen, fish and shellfish producers. So he wouldn't taste the food. Sometimes he would, but he wouldn't taste it to a point where he would want to improve it. He would taste it so that he could say that he had tasted his food. He wasn't excited about the food that we were producing. And so what that led to was uninvestment, lack of motivation, and not any connection to the work that was being done. And so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm full on the kind of like the idea of being, if you're excited about a certain cuisine from an upcoming chef, go work for them for a little while. Because if anything, you're going to learn, ah, I don't really actually like that. That's way better. And, you know, this is like keeping it into account where, like, I don't want any of you folks to be the person that just bounces around because they can't seem to commit to a certain chef or a certain restaurant or a certain cuisine. But, like, we do this because we love it. We're, most of us aren't in this for the money. And so if you're not loving it and you're also then not profiting from it, why are you doing it, you know? People will often get this conflated in, in you know, a lot of chefs talk about this where it's like, oh, well, I loved the grind and the working and the whatever. And it's like, that has to be in conjunction with loving the work that you're doing. Because if we're all just about work, 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 there are ways to calculate that and you're never going to win because someone is always going to be able to completely put their uh, family life and their you know, professional development and their sleep and their health on hold to work more than you, right? So it's like, again, it comes back to this whole thing I was talking about of like, be clear about what you're talking about here. Think for yourself and don't kind of like go with the mob mentality just because. Yes, Tommy, I'm all about this uh, kitchen knowledge management system. Um, is this showing up? Yes. Another question from Rohan. Any XYZ chef can make any XYZ dish from any part of the world. Or do you think that single chef has their own taste? Well, so unless that single chef is going to be behind the stove cooking every single plate of that dish that goes out there, that argument doesn't have any legs because they're going to have to teach somebody else to make it, right, at some point in time. And so the argument then becomes, well, who then has the capacity to make that dish? So, like, I think it's, it's it, what I'm trying to say is coming up with the idea of the, the, the flavor and the execution, those two ideas that I talk about all the time, deciding and refining the flavor and the execution of that dish 
and then coming up with a system-based way to execute it over and over and over again, that can maybe only be one person. But then the person who's going to do that day after day after day may or may not be the different than the person who came up with the idea, right? And refined it and made it into a thing. I think we need to get away from this idea. I mean, like, Ivan, uh, Ivan Raman is the clear kind of, like, way of approaching this, right? Hello, Andre from Portugal. No one can be you. That's very true. They talk about this a lot in um, just all things creative and going out and being, you know, do, doing your own thing, where it's like nobody... Uh, by definition, can have the same experience as you. The same, even identical twins, right? They, 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 were, they were not inhabiting the same space at the same time every single moment of their lives. And so, yeah, just think through that. Yeah, I guess some of this McDonald's stuff is true. Preach, David. No downside to more knowledge. I like this software, guys. Also, I can do this noise. Oh, sorry if that was loud. <laughs> uh, okay, question from Superficial. How do I think the industry will have to adapt now that most of the world is beginning to lift restrictions? I'm a chef in Ireland, and we just had our first day open since March 12th. We're seeing it in the U.S., of people splitting more or less into two camps, unfortunately. People who are completely anti-mask and just want things to go back to the way of being pre-COVID. And then there's a lot of people who just like, they, because of those people and because of kind of like the state of things and the news that they see of the cases are going up, they're not gonna leave their houses until a vaccine comes around. We've had it with client negotiations where it's like, oh, we're actually going to push out our contract with you guys indefinitely until we have confirmation that we can screen for people who have been vaccinated against this virus coming to our event. And that falling into two camps, don't really give a shit, let's just go out and we get it if we get it, and I'm not going to touch the world with a 10-foot pole until I know that things are safe, coupled with this kind of, like, complete, like, Achilles heel slashing of counties and governments of saying, oh, well, you as a restaurant can only be at 25% or 50% or 75% capacity. Oh, and there's going to be no subsidy to cover, you know, other costs related to operating in that way. And the general, like, public perception of, like, it's outrageous if the cost of a sandwich goes up because we're operating at 25% capacity, but I think your product should still be the same. It's all really, really messy, dude. It's super, super messy. I like McDonald's. I'm sorry, Shikwari. I grew up at McDonald's. I'm not, I'm not... Uh, above McDonald's food. Hell yeah. Learning food photography. Like, these are the types of things that I talk about where it's like, are, is this going to be a live time or dead time for you? Super, super happy. Yeah, do you guys like this time? Like, starting at 4 p.m. on Mondays? 
because it seems like G Lau here is like just waking up in Australia. It's like in the evening, kind of like most people, if you slept in on your day off, kind of like in the US, you're either like, I know a lot of chefs will like still stay up late on their days off. So here's the thing, Arush, with experience in general, and this is where I kind of like, why I, I, I enjoy this rep series as its own thing for the people who really want to like spend the dedicated time at home. And I was thinking about this in this morning, actually. The huge benefit that working in a restaurant gives you more so than any sort of book knowledge or any sort of um, prep that you could do at home. Like there's people who have like made amazing meals at home for themselves, but they can't function well in a professional kitchen environment. It's because professional kitchens not only give you the scale at which to actually improve at these skills, they give you the reps. Your job is to French bones off of a lamb over and over and over and over and over again. And your only option in that situation when you have to move on to the next thing because the pressure is looming over your shoulder and those people are breathing down your neck, service is happening at five, you have to get faster. No amount of like lamb that you could do at home can give you kind of like that, that environment that kind of like the combination of pressure, motivation, and satisfaction for a job well done that a restaurant can give. There's this great quote that Naval Ravikant gave when someone asked him about like schooling and just getting experience in general and his answer was very simple and it's kind of what was the catalyst for me to think about doing courses in general which was his answer was skills, not careers. And I think that that's very important and why I'm so focused on bringing this type of education to as many people as I can who are interested in it and motivated to do it. Where it's like, and most of us have seen it, right? Like we aren't spending six, seven years at a restaurant anymore. People spend two years somewhere and it's a long tenure for a lot of people. I lived it right? Not just in my own career, but with my peers. I was seeing people come and go. Talk about a hyperbaric time chamber. A restaurant can be like that sometimes. You're like, oh my goodness, I've already been here for six months, but it feels like two years. Favorite restaurants in San Francisco, San Jose area. Did I miss? Um, no. So let me go back to this question. Culinary school for a lot of people is so good because it gives you a structured learning environment and just on the basis of the assignments that you have to do, you have to make mayo every single day of that week of that class or for your practical or whatever. You have this, this, this combination of like motivation, there's a, there's a deadline, there's judgment that's going to be served at some point in the process. And you're surrounded by other people doing that same thing so you don't feel like you're alone. That in and of itself contrasts so starkly to cooking at home and reading just about food and doing cookbook stuff, right? And so for a lot of people, that's really good. But the price tag that's attached to a culinary school education, if you're saying that the, all of those things are the only the things that you need, the motivation and the deadline and the pressure and the using the using someone because like 
when you make um, uh, when you make confit duck legs and you have to peel the meat off of the bones right after they're confit or even just like butchering duck over and over and over again you are getting paid to do that experience because the person that's paying you is actually profiting off of the work that you're doing and if you're looking at it from the perspective of like I'm getting paid to learn this skill really well not just the butchering of duck over and over and over again but the time management, the communication value, the like being on my feet, the physicality of it, the skill of working with my knife over and over and over again in this way, like I know, oh, and then, oh my goodness, my knife stall, oh, I have to learn to go sharpen it, blah, 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 blah. You can condense all of this knowledge and have the other weight of the pressure of just being in that environment and your, your skill that you get is so calcified and hardened and like then you can take that skill go to somewhere else or talk to someone else and say I have this thing that's valuable as opposed to like this someone who just like kinda does it casually it's like it's cotton fluff you know what I mean it's like it hasn't experienced that like pushing on it from all these different sides, right? It's not actually, this is useless, right? Not useless, but it's not as valuable as the other person who has this thing that's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like you, you really worked on developing this whole thing, right? That's the difference. I hope that that visual, I'm a visual person, so this all makes more sense to me when I explain it that way. Favorite restaurants in San Francisco, San Jose. I haven't spent a ton of time in San Jose. When I did go, I would like I would go to In-N-Out and go to my my friend um, is the chef de cuisine at Aubergine in Carmel by the Sea, and he would take me to like his favorite like Vietnamese places when we were there. So that's more or less what I know about San Jose. San Francisco um, Angler is really really amazing. Um, Californios killing the game. Um, Couple Thai places and bee patisserie is like one of my favorite. Like, get a queen yamon at bee patisserie. You will not be disappointed. Uh, thanks, Russell. All right, Arush. Last question, and we're gonna we're gonna call it. It's been ninety minutes. Um, what should one do if they are confused for either becoming a chef or making it a hobby? So I heard this other great quote um, on a business podcast something along the lines of um, those who understand food or are good at preparing food are never devoid of friends or something in that vein. Where it's like if you can throw dinner parties at your place or even if it's not at your place, if you are working for someone and they can call upon you to prepare a fun dinner party or you're the person who brings in stuff to the office because you just like experimenting at home. That love of food can serve you very well in these other things that you're interested in doing. If you decide that you want to negotiate with clients to sell software or air conditioning units or fire trucks, and you can invite those clients from out of town, take them to an amazing restaurant 
and because you know how to talk food with the chef there, you always have an amazing experience and you're able to close more deals and your sales numbers are better than anybody else. I think having, a f having food as a force in your life often gets rewarded. I think the trap that people fall into and, you know, chefs will often do this as a, you know, sometimes it's a sign of wanting to um, solidify the importance of the work that they're doing. And it can often come at the expense of being like really harmful to people is that it's like, oh, well, if you're not all in working 12 hour days in the kitchen, like you're not a real blah, blah, blah. And that goes back to my point of like, well, there's actually someone who's probably working a few more hours than you. It's the same with money, right? Like, oh, I don't do this for the money. I only get paid, blah, blah, blah. There's someone doing this for less money than you're making. So it's like, are they then better than you? You know? And so I don't, I don't want people to get trapped in the idea that if you don't go all or nothing, this use and abuse mindset of being in food, that your contribution to loving it Truly loving it, you as a person, is not valid. I think that's silly. Um, but I just think that acknowledging that you can love it and continue... I mean, like, I have, I have people who, like, who have taken a couple of classes that I've done during COVID. And it's like, they just like it, the enjoyment of it. They just like being able to cook more exciting things for their families or for their partners or whatever. And it's like... I could flip it on its head and say, like, I'm so much better than you as a chef. Like, you don't know anything about food, blah, 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 blah. And if that then intimidates them from not wanting to learn more about food or whatever, how harmful is that, you know? And so I think that um, because there's also other people that, that go on the other side of the spectrum where they, they, they attach a paycheck to making food and it completely sucks the life out of it for them. And so they would have been better off continuing to do that sales job or the programming job or the working at a bank job or a retail job or an artist. They, they're painters or a writer. And using food as a way to share experiences with their loved ones or entertain people or whatever, like it can be different things for different people. I think the, the place where it can get so convoluted is the fact that we all have to eat, you know? Um, and so it turns into this thing where it becomes weirdly competitive. So if you want to do it as a hobby, do it as a hobby. But it's like, you also have to acknowledge that, like, it's not completely useless, um, you know, if you're not wanting to do any of this stuff. What's up, PB&J? Hello, hello. <laughs> hey Zod Zardrell. Um I covered this towards the beginning of the um towards the beginning of the podcast, actually. Um and I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I'm gonna make this go live and then everybody else can can talk about it. Um I think that it's important to cover, not because I think that everybody should have a distinct point of view or seek to use their restaurant as a vehicle for political gain. But, and I use the example of if you're cooking completely in isolation and you are making 
the dishes and you're sharing them maybe online or you're writing cookbooks and you are completely self-sustaining, I think it's okay um, to not talk about politics or things that affect um, or inflame any sort of side of the political spectrum. But if you have a place that you are saying is open to the public and you are hiring people, like you have employees that come and work in person at your place, I think it's a barbecue place, they need to know where you stand, your team and your customers. Because what happens if someone all of a sudden, oh, my, my laptop, my iPad died. What happens if, and you can insert any political issue into this, right? Your customers get over an argument. Your, um, one of your team members happens to get into a tiff with another team member. It's setting a culture. And you can call it politics, you can call it, I don't know. And I know that you're explicitly talking about social media. And the idea is that if you post something, you will lose customers over that. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's either going to happen because you, you let people know where you stand now, or something's going to happen where you're going to have to let people know where you stand. And then it's going to come out then. And unfortunately, that's just kind of the, the, the world that we're living in, where, and this varies depending on where you live and kind of like all these other sorts of factors. But I'm not saying that you should, um, the second something comes up or, or Donald Trump says this or Joe Biden says that or the, you know, some, some new policy comes up, you should let everybody know on Facebook and Instagram, here's where we stand as a company. I don't think that's completely necessary. But on certain issues, especially the ones that are just like so top of mind for people, take care of your team. Take care of your customers. Let them know where you stand. And again, notice, I'm not telling you what to do. But don't, wouldn't you say it's going to come out one way or another? I guess that's my question. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, Russell, Omni Hotel, Saute Station, back to school. Yeah, huge benefit there if you see value in it and the dollar amount that you're paying actually equates to skills that you can then take into the world and exchange them for other things that you want, right? Miguel, I love your story. I love your story because you're so into food and all of that stuff. And yeah. Chefs and businesses should leave off of business. I would, it would split your customer and employee base. Yeah, but you contrast that with the, um, the other kind of underlying values you can have as a business, right? So for example, you can say, um, we value kindness, transparency, and trust in our business. And if you then believing that um, uh, white is the superior race doesn't align with our values, you can then not be an employee here. It would just be too 
hazardous to our team. Right? I don't know, folks. Like you need to you need to help me out on some of some of this stuff, but it's like you can have core values that when interpreted through insert political issue, because we're gonna have more of these. We're gonna have more political squabbles and all of this stuff. If your core values are are aligned in a certain way, you can then make certain statements that might piss people off, but ultimately, like, if it, if it lets you continue to run your business the way you want to run your business, wouldn't you rather be in control of those things? It's that whole conversation I had about, um, it's one of my biggest pitches for restaurants in particular to put out more content about themselves. And my argument for it stems from the place of, if you don't tell your story, a restaurant critic or a journalist or David Gelb at Chef's Table is going to come along and they're going to make a documentary about you and they might get some stuff wrong or they might say it in a way that doesn't really like doesn't really match with the way that you'd like it told or they're going to take this this nugget that you want to put out in the world I'm so proud of blank and they're going to overshadow it by something in your past or some relationship that you have or whatever and it's not going to get told the way that you want it to get told. So why would you not then, with the, the ability, it's so easy to put content out into the world, why would you not then take the reins of that and put out your own content? You can be the author of the story. You can share what you want to share and tell people from the person's mouth how it went, how it originated, why it's important, you can then be that voice. Because what, what happens otherwise is people look at you and they say, like, you didn't really stand up when that person did that thing. You know, and then they can kind of, like, take it and run with it and make their own kind of assumptions with it. Wouldn't you want to be in control of how that is perceived? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, all, I'm, I'm asking on all these things. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, best Japanese knife for slicing barbecue or trimming meat? Um, it's a good question on the, the, the height of, like, the, 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 the thickness, the width of the meat, and the height of the meat. I would say, like, a standard sujihiki, like a possibly hollow ground one, would do really, really well for you. If you're looking for, like, a single bevel one, I don't necessarily know if that's the right choice, right? Because, um... Especially if you're talking about like a Yanagi style knife, like that's like, um, that's like not for bones, you know? And if you're doing something with a Deba, like you don't want something that can heave that much force through a bone where you're actually going to end up with a piece of chicken bone in the chicken, you know what I mean? Or the rib or whatever, whatever cut you're using. Um, so yeah, I would, I would go Sujihiki. Questions, questions, more questions? I stayed on for longer than I thought I would, folks. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, um, this exactly. Shikwari says, I think going to different restaurants at very young age make one's foods knowledge and food story complex over and above chef school. That was my story, right? Like I staged at tons and tons of places I learned what I liked, what I didn't like. I got to see different points of view. Because I think a really harmful thing to have is 
only one place as your frame of reference and your knowledge base. Because what that does is then that's all you know. And so when you see duck or asparagus or beets, you only know, and it's not that you only know, but you're so familiar with how to make beets in this way that this restaurant taught you how to do. And you've done it numerous times. You feel so comfortable with it. You are then boxed in in that way. And so by literally tasting from different places, you can develop this kind of multifaceted approach. You're more dimensional than someone who just has, oh, well, I worked eight years at this place. I tell the story uh, frequently to coaching people of this guy who I worked with at French Laundry. He worked there for 10 years and he became a sous chef. He moved to Hawaii and his menu was, work, not even joking, like stylistically, uh, the wording that was used, he was cooking French laundry food in Hawaii. Very interesting. Not that to say that it's bad, but, you know. Um, Tobias, what would you say to someone currently completing a non-related degree, planning on fully entering the industry after graduation, but worrying about salary limitations? Um, I often tell the anecdote that you don't have to be the principal chef owner idea generator to have an impact on a business. And what I say by that is the fact that, and I, I'm a clear example of this, right? I am a chef. I run the culinary program at this company that I co-own. But I had to find a business partner who was better at sales than me, better at finance than me, better at marketing than me, better at um, decor and creative and like bigger picture thinking and HR. Like there's so many things that I don't do at my own company because that's not the way that we've structured the business. And it ultimately gives me the freedom and the room to do stuff like this, but also to actually focus on the food more. And so... What I think we're going to see going forward is there's a lot of chefs that are just, that, are, that think similarly. And it's not to say that everybody's going to adopt this and this is like the way of the future. But I think there's going to be more options for you going into this next decade than there were the last decade. Where you can have a positive impact either partnering with a chef or being part of an organization where a chef is okay with delegating certain things. And you can then say, I work at this, I work at a restaurant. I work at a restaurant, but I'm not. And, and the value that you provide is not the fact that you have your skill set. It's the fact that you have your skill set and you can also talk food. Does that make sense? So my friend John, who was a chef first and then became a song, was able to be so successful in his career because he could talk food with the chef that he was pairing wine with. Does that make sense? So he knew what um, sauce Sharon was. He knew what dill tastes like when you put it on smoked salmon. He didn't need this kind of like back and forth that some chefs get so frustrated with where it's like, oh, you have to have the front of house taste everything for them to understand it. So you can then kind of like make that make sense, I hope, if that if that's kind of, you know, and you're welcome. You're very welcome.
I don't know if you already answered this, but how do you keep motivated on the cooking? I get a lot of this. Um, this question, these questions on motivation, which I think is very important. Um, but I don't think that it's impossible that you've completely lost the sense of purpose in being attached to that restaurant. That story that I told it way in the beginning of the person who just didn't jive with the food. It's a very thankless job. But if you don't, and like, that whole rant I went on about like not being excited about making videos, it was, it's so clear looking back on it why I wasn't motivated to make videos. Because it was like every single style of video that I could have made uh, wasn't going to hit with anybody. The state of the world was not positive. And um, yeah, so it's like figure out, dig a little bit deeper. Why are you not motivated? Right? Everybody's in a weird state right now. So you don't have to be that judgmental. Let's see. Uh, another question from Zardrell. How do I prep pop-ups? You make all the sides, the meats, and the planning. What do you recommend you doing? What is the baseline equipment? Um, I don't know your menu per se, right? But I think you, one of two things. You either really dial in your menu so that it's completely consistent across each event. So you know, oh, well, in order to make uh, the coleslaw, I need three four-quart cambros, and I divvy up the cut vegetables, the fresh additions at the end, and then the sauce. And when I show up on site, I can mix them all together in this specific bowl, because I know this bowl feeds 55 people, and I've sold 48 tickets today. So you really dial in the menu, make it super consistent so that you can diet, you can exactly say what dish needs what equipment, or you need to find a way to hire people who can then execute on different things so that, do you know what I mean? So that you can either um, scale beyond just yourself, so you're prepping off-site, you are um, deciding that you are going to commit to a commissary space where you can then have storage and you can have workflows and prep lists and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not like I can say like, you know, if you need, if you need to cut stuff, you probably need a cutting board, you know? Um, but like little things, right? Where like commissary spaces can provide intense value from larger commercial equipment that, um, being alone and not having access to that, it's very difficult to do. So when I say that, I mean like if you're just standing there, slicing the cabbage for the coleslaw with your one knife over and over and over again. I had a commissary space that I worked out of when I worked on a food truck when I moved to Seattle that had a slicer where it would auto slice. It was like a deli slicer. So you could put your cabbage, your head of cabbage with the root cut out or however you do your cabbage on that machine and it goes. You set the thickness and it just goes. You don't, you can be off uh, making barbecue sauce, you can be curing meat, you can be peeling potatoes, you can be doing whatever, but it, it just goes. <laughs> and it's automatic. And it's like, when you're working solo and you have to bring that big automatic slicer to the pop-up, it's very difficult to kind of justify that lift. But if by, and then you do the math, right? So if you value your time at X amount of dollars per hour, 
then you reverse engineer how much does it cost to, to rent space at this commissary space. And if that can save me 18 hours a month, oh, well, it's ac it actually is worth the $700 a month or whatever to rent out that space because it gives me the capacity to sell more tickets at my pop-ups. Does that make sense? So you got to kind of reverse engineer from there. I hope that helps. Imbalance between mental and physical state where your own mental health is taking over and at times having mental breakdowns. I am not licensed or able to fully help you with this. But if you go on my podcast, the Emulsion Podcast, I have an episode where I talked about my bouts with depression and anxiety. And hopefully either hearing someone else's story or the little toolkits, the tips that I'm able to provide in there and how I was able to kind of get out of that funk can help. Professional help is always going to be better than, than, than my help because what it does is it allows a third-party observer to ask you the insightful questions to help. Um, but... I think it's like, it's understandable during, in this state of the world, right? Like it really sucks right now in a lot of ways. And I don't have an answer because none of us know how we're all going to come, come away from this, right? But like, if I had to offer any advice in the moment right now, that's, that's been particularly helpful. It's like, you have to get your sleep dialed in. Like your sleep ripples out so far in other areas of your life. If you need to be persuaded by this, I was a kid who used to literally tell my mom, I think sleep is pointless as a baby. I would say naps suck. I don't want to go to bed. Sleep is pointless. And I've completely switched where I constantly wear a sleep tracking device on my person at all times. I value it so much. Um, I use Sam Harris's waking up meditation app. Even if you just do the 30 days and then move on to another app that's free, like Oak or Calm. I don't know if Calm is free, but anyways, meditation can help quite a bit because what that does is it allows you to remove yourself from the washing machine. And you can see inside, you can see how thought patterns don't serve you or continue to resurface throughout your day to day. And oh, actually, like I am feeling anxious right now. Like this is causing anxiety or, oh, that's what, uh, frustration feels like or any of these sorts of things. Again, I don't want to go on too much about it because I'm not an expert. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I really am sorry that you're going through that. It's really hard. Um, send me an email if you want to chat. Um, do you invest in a utility van? If you're doing that much scale, if you're doing that much scale. Oh, hi, Anne. My mom's name is Anne. It's a pleasure to give you the info. Did I find it too difficult to get a work visa? I did not. Um, the process by which I got a visa in Norway was that the restaurant that I wanted to work at was willing to apply on my behalf, pay for all the fees that were required, and it's kind of a chicken and egg thing with a lot of these visa things, at least in my experience, where it's like you need to show that 
you have professional, um, what is it called? Professional experience, not experience, but um, why can't I come up with this word? Um, credentials. You need to have professional credentials that then match with the place that you're going to work. So you can't be a writer going to be a chef. You can't have had English, like writing schooling, and then you're going to be a chef. Same thing with like, oh, you can't be a chef going to apply for a technology company. They want to see that they're having, and this is specific to the type of visa that I was getting, a skilled worker visa. Then in Norway, it was, it was a system where you would tell them how long you wanted your visa for, and you would hope that they granted you either that amount of time or more than that. So the first time I applied, I applied for six months and I got a year. The second time I applied, I applied for a year and I got three years. So it kind of depends. Um, and your standing gets better over time, right? So if they see, oh, you came into the country as a skilled worker, you've been able to hold this job, you've been paying your taxes, blah, 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 there's no weird criminal stuff on your record, they're probably going to give you a longer extended stay on your second time applying. But that's the only advice I can give. Yeah, Brittany, this is a really interesting question. Thoughts on cooks making more money on unemployment versus going back to work if their job is 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 ready is still ready available? That's really hard because um, why would you go back to trading your time for money when the government is telling you that they will just give you the money in exchange for no time? I think that it's a very interesting thought exercise for a lot of people who are just realizing that like, oh, well... Um, I, I still want the money part, but I don't want the work part that comes with it. And I think that a lot of people are coming, coming to that realization. What I, what I fear is that people get caught up, um, people get caught, yeah, sorry guys, my phone's going crazy right now. Um, people get caught when they get used to, oh, I'm making $600 a week on unemployment, and then all of a sudden, because you're not in control of that money. Yes, you're unemployed, and the government is going to give you money, but the amount is so not in your control. Because, yes, it might completely flip off, it might go to zero, it might increase, or it might decrease. And that's like kind of a little bit like, duh, it's got to do one of those three things. But... I personally don't like being in a place where I cannot be in control of where my finances are coming from. And if you're okay with it and you're like, this is totally cool, like I'm making a little bit more, I don't have to work as much, I get to spend time with my people, and I am able to flick that switch back on if and when I need to, to go back to work. More power to you. You do you, take advantage of it, like you're kind of gaming the system a little bit, but like if you're you can do it with some moral conscience and it's okay. If you needed the time off anyways, go for it. What I don't want is for people to say, oh, this is so great. I'm totally taking advantage of the government, making tons, I'm making $2,400 a month. I'm not working. This is more than I was making at my job. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, there goes that money. Uh, August 1st, some sort of mandate happens. And in your state in particular, um, that money's gone, and you have, you've become this kind of like, 
you, you, you haven't been working, so it's really hard for you to get another job. Your skills are completely, like, rusty because you haven't been cooking or whatever job you do. And so any time that you have control, like, the ability to take agency over your life rather than saying, oh, the government's going to handle it for me, take the agency route every time because it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay off in the long run. Yes, you might be able to profit a little bit during this time, but you're going to be way better off if you take that personal responsibility down the road. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, like I said, please email me if you need help. Is staging expensive? Staging is expensive if you're going to do it for like long, long, long periods at a time with no, I, uh, with no goal in the end to um, um, get a job after the fact. So I had a friend who was just like completely okay with his parents bankrolling him staging for like two or three years and he never got, a, he never actually got a job working anywhere. And this is also coming from someone who was like, I asked my parents for help as I was like navigating the stocking landscape, but it was always with the goal of getting a job at the end of it. And it came with a paycheck at a certain point in time, you know? So it's like, how do you decide when the working for free stops and the I'm committing here for a paycheck starts? And some people get lucky, you know, like, there's a lot of stories of people who like, oh, well, they stage for a month and then they do two more months, but those last two months, their manager um, gives them cash under the table during that time because it's like, thank you so much for your work that you're doing for us. You know, so it's different for everybody. Um, love it, love it that you're heading back, heading back to work. Um, Michael Bubble. George Delbia. Um, yes, they can. If anything, um, so the question is, do, do I think uh, ghost kitchens and traditional restaurants can coexist? Um, and I think that they can. I think they're going to increasingly become more popular as people start to realize that they can uh, extract more dollars from the, square f the dollars per square foot that they're paying by either running a ghost kitchen operation themselves or offering their square footage and their kitchen space in a corner of their walk-in to this other concept that will pay them rent to test out their project that needs a kitchen for it. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. All right, guys. Um, and I'm going to answer your question. It's going to be the last question. I really appreciate everybody hanging out. This went way longer than I thought it would, 30 minutes longer. Um, but it's been a blast hanging out. Um, let's see. Help to think on your toes. Is freelancing in different lodge in different kitchens as really as a relief chef or ASMR? I don't think I understand the question. Um, I'm sorry if I don't understand the question enough. Freelancing, freelance chefing is hard. It's, it's really hard. Um, after, you know, almost two or three years of this, of like bouncing around to different kitchens, it's like giving me a whole new kind of outlook on people who get to come into the same four walls and the same kitchen and they, the ingredients that they left in there in the walk-in are still there from last night. 
Um, the menu is the same. They can see their reservations. It's like, it's a completely different ballgame. Um, so happy that this internet held up, the video held up. Really, really appreciate you. Uh, you can e message me on social media or email me. Uh, it's on my website. If you go to my website, justincona.com, there's a big red button at the bottom that says contact me. Send me a message. Happy to chat anytime. Okay, I'm about to hit the, the finish button. Um, this has been great. I feel really good to get a lot of this stuff off my chest um, and to kind of chat through it with you. Um, stay tuned for future things. Join as a YouTube member here if you want, or conversely, support on Patreon, because as I launch courses, the first cohorts will probably be the people who are supporting them. And even if you aren't part of the first cohort as like a fully involved student, I will be asking those people for feedback. So, and even if you can't financially support right now, I completely understand the state of things. Get on my email list, because those people are going to hear first. And I'm sending out a new email newsletter tomorrow or Wednesday. So yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You folks are the bomb. Uh, really appreciate it. I hope you have a good one. Thanks for hanging out.